We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. You know, the thing that I really marvel at about this epidemic is it's reminded us how fragile we are, which imbues a sense of vulnerability. And these are two things that people are afraid of, particularly men. They don't want to be vulnerable. Well, you are. What you going to do now? Because you can't thug your way out of the corona. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. You cannot thug your way out. So I think that that frightens people also. Looking at their fragility, looking at their mortality, looking at their vulnerability. Yeah? But what a divine opportunity. What a divine opportunity there is for us to get really clear about who we be and how we be living. Iyanla Van Zant is a spiritual teacher, an empath, and a truly deep person. I could feel in our conversation that she cares deeply about people and she's thought deeply about herself, about the spirit, about the world. It was really powerful to talk to her. For now, it's Jan Van Zandt on Torre Show. So, you know, in this moment of great fear and death and uncertainty, you are launching a new show called Fear Not. Yeah. Um, how do we not fear in this moment when a lot of us are losing jobs, getting pay cut, getting sick, family members sick, family members dying, friends dying? It's all around us. How do we not fear in this moment? Well, I, I don't think we're going to not fear. I think that we, we fear is a natural, normal response that's saying, be, be aware, pay attention, be cautious, you know? The thing is, you don't want to buy real estate there. You don't want to move through every day there. First of all, because fear suppresses the immune system. And with this COVID-19, I call it the corona, 
you know, the corona wrecks havoc on the immune system. So you want to keep your immune system as healthy as possible at this time. And that just means that you have to walk through the fear. You have to care front your fear. But sitting around every day in stress and worry and anxiety, that's, that's not going to change anything. That's not going to get your job back. That's not going to keep you from getting a disease. That's not going to change anything. So what, we, what I talk about in the show, and Fear Not, is how to move through the fear so that fear is not your normal operating procedure. Uh, and that's when it becomes dangerous. Are there specific things that you want us to do to help us get through this? Some people have said, even if you haven't had a meditation practice in the past, you need to do that. Or you need to be working out to get your muscles and your blood going and these sort of things. Are there specific things you want to advise folks to do to help them get through this period of, of extreme pain and anxiety? Well, the first thing you have to do is identify what the fear is. What is the fear? I mean, what are you afraid of? <laughs> you know, and everybody seems to be focusing on the fact that uh, the corona has, they're afraid of what the corona has done. Most of the things that we're afraid of, we brought in with us. We brought it into the epidemic. Most people are afraid of death. Most people are afraid of change. Most people are afraid of the unknown. Most people are afraid of losing control. So all of that has happened all at one time. And we're blaming it on the corona. No, no, it was already there. So one of the things we have to do is identify what the fear is. If you've lost your job, what are you afraid of? Not getting another one? What will happen if you don't have an income? You know, but but waste not. I don't want to say wasting your time, but spending energy, spending energy. I'm more concerned about energy. Spending energy, lamenting that is not going to change. So let's identify what the fear is and identify how we can move through it. One of the easiest ways, to, the things that we can do to move through fear is learn how to breathe. Most of us, as soon as we get afraid. <gasps> We stop breathing. <laughs> you know, so many people are walking around holding their breath. And we've got to learn how to breathe. Why? Because that oxygen, the body, it clears the mind and it supports the immune system. So we do some breath work in, uh, in Fear Not so that people just remember to breathe. <laughs> it, really, thing- it really helps you turn an emotional chapter Almost. I know that when I have moments of great anxiety or when certain feelings that I don't want to live in well up and I can like take a pause and just focus on like five deep breaths, one after another, try to clear the mind and just thinking about breathing. And it really does have an emotional reset sort of thing that happens of like, okay, I'm not in that place anymore and I can move to another emotional state. Right. Right. Uh, it does set, reset the emotional energy and it does clear the mind because it oxygenates the brain. You know, if you can just get into that. The other thing is from a spiritual perspective, I mean, the thing that keeps us connected to life is breath. Because I don't care whether it's the corona or a heart attack or a gunshot or a, a overdose. Death is the same thing for everybody. They exhale and they don't inhale. So <laughs> breath is what keeps us connected to life. So when you have a problem in life, you don't want to 
stop breathing. You don't want to die, so to speak, in that moment. You want to get into the breath and you want to be present with the breath and you're connected to your source, your creator, God, whatever you want to call it, um, in that moment. So that is so important. I think the other thing is, you know, the thing that I really marvel at about this epidemic is it's reminded us how fragile we are, which imbues a sense of vulnerability. And these are two things that people are afraid of, particularly men. They don't want to be vulnerable. Well, you are. What you going to do now? <laughs> because you can't thug your way out of the corona. <laughs> no, no, you can't. You cannot thug your way out. No. So I think that that frightens people also. Looking at their fragility, looking at their mortality, looking at their vulnerability. Yeah? But what a divine opportunity. What a divine opportunity there is for us to get really clear about who we be and how we be living. I mean, how, we, how we be living is a little strange right now. <laughs> especially for men who are supposed to be strong. Yeah. The, the, the embracing or the admitting of vulnerability is very frightening. Yeah. And I had a small personal breakthrough when I watched uh, Brene Brown's piece on Netflix, and she talked about embracing vulnerability is strength. Yes. And I always thought, like, if I go to the place of admitting that I am vulnerable, then I am admitting weakness. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like, that is admitting strength. And that that is, I mean, especially for Black men. Like, we don't want to hear about our weakness because we need to walk through the world with a shield on. But see, the challenge is, and we brought this into the pandemic. It didn't come about as a result of the pandemic. Right. The challenge is the the... Mis the misperception that you're not always vulnerable. You are always vulnerable. You walk yes. out in the streets, you don't know what wackadoodle is out there getting ready to blow your brains out. <laughs> you get in your car, you don't know what semi-18-wheeler uh, can run you off the road. So we're always vulnerable, but the ego, and particularly for men, the ego gives this illusion that we're in control. Well, right mm -hmm. now, ain't nobody in control of nothing. We don't know if the if the corona's coming through the tree leaves, through your eyeballs, through the <laughs> through the skin. Now they say it hangs eight minutes in the air. It's going for your toes. Now it's after the children. We don't know what the heck this thing is. So we're all vulnerable. And so it's not about admitting it. It's about allowing it. It's about accepting it and then being able to stand in the strength of that. But see, that requires faith and that requires trust, something many of us did not bring into the pandemic. <laughs> I, I know that your fan base is gigantic, but just for Black people in specific, who I try to speak to through this show, um, we are particularly going through this thing. We are dying and, and getting infected at higher rates than other demographics. Is there a particular message for black and uh, brown men and women that you have or specific tactics you want us to do, you know, based on our culture and our community, because we are suffering uh, more from this? You know, I have to acknowledge not that we're suffering more. We don't need to take that on. I think we have suffered enough. 
we got crack and crazy. Corona was the last thing we needed. <laughs> yes. You yes. know, not because we've suffered more, but because we are more and we use less. We are more and we use less. What do you mean by that? I mean, when I think of the fact that the reason I'm here on the planet is because someone in the 1800s lay chained in the bottom of a ship, eating off the scraps of somebody else's face. And then that person got off the ship and worked in fields for hours upon hours for nothing. And then that person gave birth to somebody that scrubbed somebody's toilet, nursed somebody's baby, cooked somebody's food, washed somebody's floors, and maybe had to sleep with somebody's husband just to get a few dollars to feed their... That is in my blood. How dare I? How dare I doubt my capacity and ability to deal with whatever life was my way? We can't sit silent for 15 minutes when our great-great-grandmother laid in the bottom of a ship for months. We have more and we use less. And we wear the suffering sometimes as a badge of courage. We brought bad health in, in here with us because we got so apathetic that we don't fight for ourselves anymore. Yes, our communities are ravished. I mean, it broke my heart when I saw what was going on in New Orleans. New Orleans is just recovering from, still recovering from yep. Katrina. Yep, yep. But where are we marching? Where are we knocking? Where are we calling? Where are we riding? Where? Where are we? I don't know when we got into this give me, give me hand. I, I don't know. Where is that 60 spirit? You know, I'm a baby of the 60s. Yeah. We marched for everything. We marched for breakfast. We marched for buses. We <laughs> marched for, 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 for uh, reading, voting. We, but not anymore. Who can we blame that hypertension is so r ravishing our community? Who can, who, who's responsible for that? When we still run to the corner to get fried chicken out the place. So my message is, this is a time for us to reset. This is a time for us to really look at how we be and how we be living and make some really needed changes. I'm not just talking about people who are in lower economic environments and, and, and those areas. I'm talking about all of us, all of us. We have to look at what we're doing, I mean, that there are more African-American men in prison than there are slaves that came to North America? What the hey? Who, who's responsible for that? And yes, trust me, I know the prison system. I've, I've, got, I've got a grandson in prison right now. I'm so sorry. Okay? So I'm, is your face covered? They don't have masks. They don't have, they don't have soap. They don't have anything. Yeah? But who, who, he, who's responsible for that? Are you, are you saying that we are responsible? No, 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 not at all. Okay. I'm saying we have to take a new level of responsibility okay. so that when these things hit, we're not, we're not flat on our backs. Okay. We have to get health care in our community. We have yeah. to. 
We have to make sure we have good food in our communities. We have to. We have to. They're not going to do it for us. You know, the, the corner store, you're not going to get the best quality of food there. But is there, a, a, is there a, a cooperation of us that we can come together in these neighborhoods and open a co-op? Do we have to run downtown and work in the office? Can we open a co-op in our community? Can we get more childcare? I mean, the things that have become very apparent during this epidemic, I think we also have to address. We can't just wait for others to address it. I see some, maybe more than some black millennials pushing their grandparents, just specifically on the food issue, because so much of the food tastes good, comes yeah. with love, comes with pork, comes with fried, comes with lard, what have you. And it tastes fantastic. And grandma is killing it, you know, with the food. Um, and she did not know the impact it was having on our bodies. She just yes. knew it tasted great and everyone was happy. And I see a lot of millennials saying, you know, grandma, I love your whatever, but I'm vegetarian, you know, or I'm trying to cut down. So if you can't broil it or you can't make it without pork, then I'm not going to eat it. And having that moment of like, grandma's like, are you rejecting my cooking? Like, no, I'm trying to make healthy choices and I'm trying to bring you with me. And I hear stories of grandmothers who are like, okay, I will shift. And the baby's teaching us and taking us in a new direction. Um, I'm sure not. Go ahead. I had that experience. You know, my grandmother's part Native American. So not part, she is Native American. (laughs) And she was a, a domestic for many years. So she cooked, you know, the pork chops and the whatever. Now, I tell you, there were many times when I would go to her house and because of the amount of love she put in the food, I'd eat the pork chop <laughs> and I'd eat the greens. But then I, like you said, I brought her some smoked turkey butts, <laughs> not the wings. She didn't want the wings. <laughs> I brought her the smoked turkey butts and I said, you know, Grandma, work with this. See how we can work with this. Uh, or, or I cooked the greens and brought them. And she said, and I said, she, oh, you know, okay, you need a little more crushed red pepper. I said, but but my grab, I cooked it with uh, turkey turkey butts. Turkey butts, what's that? You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have to change. But what, you know, don't hear me, please don't hear me at all saying that we are responsible. What I'm saying is the epidemic has made us aware. It has made us aware of really how we be and how we be living. Now, what are we going to do on the other side? You've gotten so much attention and love for uh, the Fix My Life series. And I wonder in the, when you look at the aggregate, when you look at, you know, the, all the many families and people you've helped what is it that most people need <clears throat> to fix their lives? <clears throat> um, I, they need to be heard, particularly us. You know, we come from the children are seen and not heard community. They need to be heard. The other thing most people need, most of us, I'm speaking specifically about us, because most of my guests are people of color. Uh, I think I scared the other folk away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I saw you telling one woman about her white privilege. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, you know, but that's because she had a she had a mixed race son. Amen. Uh, 
Yeah. But, but, but the thing is, okay, I want to say two things. The first thing is, you know, when you look at the television or you look at things today, you don't see people that look like us doing this work. But you've got Phil, you've got Oz, you've got Brene Brown, you've got Deepak, well, Deepak is one of us, but you've got, uh, uh, you know, Mark Victor Hansen, you've got Tony Robbins, because that community will pay to help themselves. We won't. We'll pay go see Beyonce. And that's not about Beyonce. No, no, she's amazing. But, you but you're talking about something else. Understand? We won't invest in ourselves because we are not clear that we matter. So we need to be heard. We need to know we matter. Most of us grew up in so much turmoil. But here's the thing, Torre, and I know people will find this very interesting. Um, the other side, they, they got the same stuff going on. They are, some of the things that go on over there, we would never, we can't even spell. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I work with people of all races and I've seen all kinds of stuff. (laughs) You know, the thing is that because either because of their uh, resources, they, they, they address it and we don't. That's the, I'm telling you, some of the stuff that I've heard from other communities we can't even spell. We would never even consider. <laughs> but like us, they need to be heard. They need to know they matter. And um, this is hard for me to say, but I want to say it in a way that we can hear it, you know, because it's not a criticism or a judgment because I'm just as black and red and brown. I, I'm all of it. Father's line is Cherokee. Mother's line is Dahomean. And in there, I have the mix of Cuban and Panamanian. (laughs) You don't get no more confused. (laughs) I didn't know we were having pineal for Christmas or turkey or buffalo. (laughs) Yes, I have eaten buffalo. Um, We have to get over this generational codependency. When I say codependency, because in our cellular memory, there is still the attachment to less than, uh, can't do, don't have. There's still the renters, uh, you know, sharecropper. So there's a level of being dependent on others or things outside of ourself, like a job, you know? Um, So that depth of healing for us, red people, brown people, red meaning Native American, brown meaning Latin, and and black meaning descendants of Africans. We're codependent. And the other thing that has really made us codependent is religion. And as a seminary trained and ordained minister, that's hard for me to say, but it has made us codependent on something or someone outside of ourselves to give us what we need, to do what we need done. And it was the late 50s, early 60s, when we kind of grew up some inner authority. Mm -hmm. 
we need that again. We need it again. You know, I think that is really important to say and hard to say, and some will try to mishear it, but I think it's real. And I think when you see some white households, you see the difference in the amount of efficacy that we have and what they have. And just as one example, I don't think it's a coincidence that the first black president was raised by a white woman. Right. Because she would have never thought to tell him you can do anything and yeah. really mean it, you know, and and for us, it was before Barack, it was truly hard for us to truly imagine you can do anything the same way that uh, his mother could have told him, like, no, no, really, you could do anything. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, <clears throat> the things that are thrown in our way to distract us. Not from doing, from being. Barack Obama didn't do the presidency. He he became the president. You understand? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He walked it. He talked it. He lived it. Not changing who he was, but it was a part of his being. Both him and the first lady. Their being. How they raised their children. How they ate their food. How they spoke to each other. How they dealt with each other. Their being. They didn't do it. So we try to do what is required as opposed to being who we are. And in that being, there is the cellular memory. It's cellular. That's why our inner work, our spiritual work, our breath, our prayer, our meditation, our journaling is so critically important. Keeping our energy clean, keeping our energy clean. Some of us have brilliant minds and we have great capacity, but we got funky energy. (laughs) But so, so it's about being, how do we be this thing? But the trick is, you know, survival, survival, you know, and the things that come our way that keep us distracted from our power and our greatness and our capacity. You know, we're worrying about rent. (laughs) Oh, and, and, you know, and rent is important, but there's so many things that you've just said in the last couple minutes that I want to unpack. Um, One of them, you talk about the mental health stigma in our community that we look at, many of us look at, you know, going to a therapist, you know, or engaging in some of these sort of mental health things um, is some white stuff. And those of us who have been to therapy or are in therapy understand there's tremendous value in it. And maybe sometimes it means finding a black therapist who could speak to you, uh, you know, at your level. Um, But uh, how do we break through the mental health stigma well, again, it goes back to our cellular memory. For example, the worst thing you could be or do as a Black person was have something wrong with you. Mm. You understand? We you could not that. have anything wrong with you because you could get beaten. <clears throat> you, you could get sold. You could get you know, killed. So you couldn't have anything wrong with you. So still in that cellular memory and that molecular structure of our being, the same way your nose is like that, your hair is like that, your color is like that, is that memory of, uh, you know, I can't have anything wrong. I can't complain. I can't talk about anything's wrong with me. I've always got to put on this front. You know, your great-great-grandmother couldn't cry when they stole her baby 
or when they, she was raped, you know, that she had to suck it up and take it. It's in our cellular memory. And then we're conditioned like that in our family. Stop that crying. Ain't nothing wrong with you. A uh, year it is. I'm not feeling well. Or you hurt my feelings. Stop that. Shut up. You're a boy. No crying. You know, it's cultural. Yeah. So we need to think of, of therapy or counseling as sitting on the porch, because we love to sit on the porch and gossip. <laughs> so therapy is how you gossip about yourself. <laughs> Go somewhere and gossip about yourself, because it's cultural, you know, then that, that what goes on in the house stays <laughs> in the house, you know? And so it's, if we look at it from that perspective, I think that we can broaden our capacity to receive and accept it. It's not that there's anything wrong with you. Is that you're going to get right with yourself. Um, another thing that you brought up for me is that you are, you know, one of the few people of color who are doing the sort of work that you are doing. And obviously your fan base is diverse. You are serving black and brown and white uh, customers who are coming to your books and your lectures and all the, your shows and all the things you're doing. And but let's or, be clear, I'm black to the bone. Of course, of course. But you, but, but, white, but white people also want what you are offering to the world. It's true. It's and for many of us who are professionals in various fields, be it a dentist, a spiritualist, whatever, that we, we need and want the white customer as well, right? And that means building uh, the trust with white folks that, we are just as good as any other lawyer or doctor or, you know, what have you. How do you build that? I think for a lot of us, we need to understand how do we build that to get white people to understand, hey, Tony Robbins is great. You know, uh, Deepak is great. You know, uh, uh, whoever else you did is there. They're great. But, you know, Iyanla can help you, too. You know, I'm just as good as any of them. I never worried about that. I just showed up as Iyanla. I showed up. You know, I, I, I'm very clear. Uh, yes, I am a seminary trained and ordained minister. I am a Yoruba priestess, been one for 38 years, been back and forth to Africa many times. I am a Lakota pipe carrier. You understand? So I've never hidden who I was or apologized for what I do. I come from a cultural perspective, always have, always will. I don't apologize. And, you know, and I speak from my experience. It's authentic. It's true. If you can relate, you can. If you can't, that's fine. But you know, the people that come after me, white people have never rejected me. It's the Christians. (laughs) The Christians don't understand you. Oh, yeah. You know, again, you know, and I have to remind them I am seminary trained and ordained. And I'm still clear because religion without culture is empty. Religion without culture is empty. Christianity is a religion, but what is the culture that it's based on? Judaism is based on a culture and a history of people. Catholicism is based on a culture and a history of people. What is the culture and the history of which people is Christianity based on? And I'm not downing Christianity. And I ain't even talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the theology and the dogma. But it's it's been us who have denounced me, who have, who have, vilified me. I don't know if you remember Emerge Magazine. I do. I wrote an article for Emerge Magazine. 
the last episode of Emerge Magazine was me on the cover with them vilifying me. The whole article about when I had my facility and there was a Christian church across the street and they came out and interviewed all the Christians and they went off about how horrible I was. And I was on the cover of Emerge Magazine. That was the last episode they ever did. No, they did one more after me with H. Rap Brown. That was their last episode. Their last, you know. Uh, that sounds like karma. If uh, <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question about you and then I want to ask you a question about, about me so we could uh, both go there. Um, if you came into your life saying, fix my life, what would you be looking at your life to say like, well, you could do X, Y, and Z better and you need to consider doing A, B, and C? Spend more time with God and less time with people. (laughs) You know, spend more time with God, less time with people. More time in contemplation, more time in reflection, more time in, in meditation. Because as a servant of God and the people, I need to be sure that my instructions are coming from God. You know, uh, that's something that one of my teachers taught me a long time ago. I don't have the luxury of making up what I do. If I say that I'm a servant of the Most High, then I need to make sure that all of my instructions and directions are coming from on high. So, you know, and I have a very, very um, healthy and, and, and rigorous prayer life and, and, and spiritual practice, uh, daily spiritual practice, I do. But I can always use more, you know, less time on law and order and more time in the law with the order. <laughs> <laughs> law and order is good, though. Yeah. Um. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. For me, you know, I have always been really good at holding a grudge. And, you know, there, there I used to like, I, you know, I'd go for long jogs and in the middle of it, I would remember somebody that I was mad at and I couldn't remember why I was mad at that person. <laughs> and I would do the work to remember the slight to re- and then like put it back in on the shelf of like, okay, now I remember why I'm mad at you and I'm still mad at you and I might work with you. I might smile at you, but like, I remember why I'm mad at you. You know, I recovered that memory from eight years ago, or what have you. And there's, there's a lot of anger at certain people who I feel have wronged me over the years. And in recent weeks, I think in the last three weeks, I have tried to become very intentional about I know that you are mad at certain people. Let's release that. And I and, and it comes up again while I'm working out where I will like um, like feel the anger and I will stop and I will imagine like a door to my heart opening and like you know the birds of anger like flying out and I try to think about the things that I'm grateful for for now and the future and it calms me down. But just wanting to be done with that emotional habit is not the same as doing it, right? And it still takes more work to get out of that. So how do I, how do I further flush out 
that anger and find, for, I, I mean, because I still be like, well, I don't want to forget. And I'm not ready to forgive, but I do want to release. Why aren't you ready to forgive? Because the, sl- because the slights and the pain and the injuries were deep and intentional. And? <laughs> and your point is? I guess, and I guess, you know, like, I don't want to be hurt by these people again. I was trusting and it's like, don't, don't fall into that again. So, you know, but I know it's holding me down. And I've talked to my friends about this and they're like, yes, it's like you're drinking a poison chalice and thinking that they're going to get sick. I, I know. And I'm doing, I'm doing where I have my own little exercises to try to think about gratitude and to breathe and try to think about the future and still, you know, you, you, so what would you, what would you advise? First of all, I want to acknowledge your candor and your willingness to, to really share that. That is amazing. So I want to acknowledge that. I don't want you to think that I didn't hear it or this is, you know, some quick fix, fix me up thing. So, because that was deep and it was heartfelt. So I want to acknowledge that. The other thing is, um, you got a pencil? I want you to write this down. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm going to give you a couple of layers and so that you'll have it because you're not alone. There are hundreds of thousands of other people who are right there and won't admit it. That's why I'm really acknowledging you you admitting that. Um, because grudges are the spiritual Louis Batons, red bottoms. <laughs> the grudges, it's the spiritual red bottom, okay? Because <laughs> you're walking on it all the time. Okay, so write this, to understand this. People come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. They come to fill a, per- a particular reason. They come for a particular season, or they come for a lifetime. Lifetime relationships are parents, children, siblings, uh, not even partners, because partners can go. If you have children together, chances are they'll be in your life for a lifetime because you got children. The other thing is, no matter what's going on in your life, you're either learning a lesson, teaching a lesson, or the object by which a lesson is being taught. So sometimes people come into your life to teach you something you need to know. Sometimes they come in to learn something from you. And other times you're just an object that life is using to teach them and you will learn in the process, okay? Then this is the big one. So clutch your pearls or your your BVDs or whatever men clutch. (laughs) Clutch your people down there. Everybody that comes in your life is a reflection of you, your relationship with yourself and how you treat yourself. One of the challenging aspects of holding a grudge is that we see in others or we consider that what others have done to us, we don't recognize that it's the same thing we do to ourselves or have done to others. And we can't acknowledge it. 
How have you slighted yourself intentionally? How have you violated your own confidence intentionally? How have you done what was done to you? And the reason we hold on to the grudge is because we either don't have the tools or the willingness or the readiness to look at how we have done that to ourselves or how we've done it to somebody else. So we occupy, the ego is such a tricky little thing. The deceptive intelligence keeps us busy being mad at them so we don't have to look at us. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Uh, my second husband, I was very young and I got married. We had a daughter and his mother was very, very present in my life. But when I got into another relationship, uh, I didn't want her in my life. You know, I was moving on. I was doing something new and she was a reminder of the old relationship. So I found every way I could to avoid her. I wouldn't answer her. And this is pre caller ID and all of that. You know, I was always busy. I wouldn't answer her calls. I always had an excuse. And all she wanted to do was see her grandchild. And because I was so into, you know, my new life with my new man, you know, I just dismissed her. This went on for years and years and years. So when my, this new person and I broke up, it was her, she was around. But by then the children had, didn't have a relationship with her, you know, so it was just hard. Fast forward. My daughter passed. So sorry. And I raised her daughter. But her daughter's father remarried and didn't want me in his life. So he would covet my daughter, my granddaughter. Now, this was my daughter's only daughter. <laughs> He wouldn't answer the phone. He put a block on the phone so she couldn't call me. And when I called, I got voice. I mean, for, I mean I'm talking about immediately after her death. This went on for years. And in my mind, this is what he was doing to me. He was holding my granddaughter. He was hiding my granddaughter until I got clear. Oh, this is exactly what I did to Lucy. I'm just experiencing it from the other side. So here's your other lesson. You never completely heal a thing until you experience it from both sides. Mm. Which is why I say what you think they did to you, how do you do it to yourself or how have you done it to somebody else? And if you haven't done it to somebody else, let them free because the day is going to come when you are going to have the choice to do to somebody what you think they did to you and you get to choose. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And you surely would advise that with that knowledge, one should choose to do the right thing rather than be able to, we do what we do based on who we are and the information we have at the time. I wasn't intentionally trying to be uh, cruel to my mother-in-law. I was just in my own, I've got a new life and you my ex-husband's mother and I do what you put to, and my new man wants to raise my kid. You know, that's who I was. And that's the information that I, and I didn't get the depth of 
it until I was experiencing it from my daughter's ex-husband. So you may not be able to make a choice, but once you get, oh my God, this is exactly what I accuse boo-boo of doing to me. Oh my God, this must be how, uh, you know, so-and-so felt, or this is how I felt when such and such, you, you understand? Mm-hmm. The thing is, first, the first point of reference is to look at how you do it to yourself. Because the only reason you draw it in is because that's where you're vibrating. Or there's something you need to learn. You know, we have these experiences where, you know, we see the flashing red light. Leave that alone. Leave that alone. Don't do that. And we're like, oh, they ain't going to do that to me. Or I'm a change. Or I'm different. And, you know, we walk in there. And then when we get smacked in the face with a pile of poop, then we get mad at the person. It's not the warning, boo. I told you. you. Yeah, I told you. You saw the ripple. You needed a brick, brick upside the head. So that is the low down skinny on grudges. And you can send me the check. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but that is one of one of the harder parts of life is understanding that I don't I may not understand what has happened or what the lesson is or what the lesson I can take until later and living in that sense of I don't know. I don't know what God or the universe is trying to teach me or what I should learn from this moment. But do you ask, what has this come to teach me? Mm -hmm. What am I growing here? What am I learning here? And it sounds to me, just based on your speaking, that you're learning forgiveness. Trying. Yeah, you're learning forgiveness. I'm not ready to forgive. I'm trying to release. Not ready to forgive. Forgiveness is the release, beloved. You can't release our forgiveness. <laughs> forgiveness is the spiritual x lax <laughs> <laughs> It is stuck and it's hard. <clears throat> you got to you got to take a little dose of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the spiritual <laughs> x lax It will clear out the, you know, the spiritual cooties and the poop. <laughs> I wasn't an old lady. I'd say, clean up your sh, but I won't say that. (laughs) You seem to say, whatever you want. You can't it without forgiveness. Mm. Forgiveness is the universal neutralizer because you can't love until you forgive. Mm. I mean, I was trying to wrap my head around the notion of, you know, we are grateful for the peaks and the zeniths and the good things in life. Can you be grateful for the valleys? Oh, I wrote a book about it. (laughs) How do you, well, how do you get to be grateful for the pain and the valleys and the difficult times? Because it is teaching you what you need to make it up the mountain. Mm. There's a valley between every mountain. You can't just stay on the mountaintop forever. First of all, the air is very thin. Then at the mountaintop, you know, so you've got to go down in the valley to get rest, to get renewed, to get reinvigorated, you know, and the valley, you know, the companions, the divine companions in the valley of on your way to your good is sorrow and suffering. They are the landlords of the valleys. And there's a valley between every mountain. It is. And and sorrow and suffering are the landlords of every valley. 
between every mountain. And so you go down into that valley and you spend time with sorrow and suffering so that you get to learn what you need to learn and grow what you need to grow to make it back up the mountain again and so that you know how to behave when you get up there. Mm. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> uh, you, you talked about the the long sweep of your life and the, the, the mountains and the valleys, and your life has absolutely had high peaks and then valleys and then peaks again. And just looking at the scope of your life, it gives one faith that you can return from the lows to get back to these awesome highs. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one thing I couldn't help but notice is that you were deeply connected with Oprah. That fell apart for whatever reason, and you ran into troubles in your life. And when you guys reconvened and reconnected, your life went back to these wonderful. And it makes me say, "Is she a goddess? Did she? <laughs> did she say, Elia? I pick you. You're going to have a great life. And then when it wasn't working out between the two of you, it wasn't a great life. <laughs> then it's when you that's an intellectual perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a deeper spiritual component. It's not about Oprah. Oprah's just the tool that God used. Oprah's the tool that God used because the one gift that Oprah Winfrey has given me 
was permission to be young. White folks wanted me to be somebody else. And I learned that quick, okay? She doesn't have a problem with me being black. She'll have a problem with me being tacky, ghetto. She don't have a problem with me busting my verbs. <laughs> she don't have a problem with that, you know? I mean, I was with NBC Universal and I was with Mickey Mouse, Buena Vista, and they wanted me to be something else. So that is the greatest gift that she gave me. But she is just a tool being used. It ain't about Oprah. Really, it isn't. It's just the opportunity. And I'm the tool that they use for her because she came out with all of the shows on own and da, 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 but it was Fix My Life and she'll tell you that. It was Fix My Life that took on into another genre, okay? So, and it wasn't that my life fell apart. It was that there were things I had to learn. When I was first in on the Oprah Winfrey show, my value and worth was in the toilet. I was good at what I did. I was authentic. I was all of that. But internally, I didn't have the place that I deserved it. That's mm. what blew it up. Mm. Didn't have anything to do with Oprah. And that's why it's important that we don't look out here. We look at how you be. I blew that up. Because I didn't think I deserved it. I knew she wanted the work. But inside, I felt that she didn't honor, accept, respect me. And when you don't believe that you're worth what it is that you have or you receive, you will blow it up. You blow your life up. And that's what I did. I blew that up. I blew my publishing contracts up. I blew my, my money up. I blew it up. And I don't come from a history. My grandmother was born on the reservation. You know, my mother scrubbed cars on the Pennsylvania. I don't have a model for being wealthy and rich and famous. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I had to learn. I had to learn. And so many of us have that. I was the first one to make it out. Do you know the responsibility of being the one that makes it out? Mm -hmm. Carrying mm -hmm. those people and feeling guilty. And every dime you get, you got you to gotta pay people's rent and do this and do that. And do Please, I'm better now. <laughs> now your inside matches your outside. You feel you are deserving. There's not a, a, a separation between the success and the sense of deserving it. Well, now I don't need success. What I need is a closeness to God. I'm on purpose. I'm on purpose. You understand? So I know as long as I'm on purpose, doing what the creator put me here to do, I will always have what I need. I don't, ha I don't need a great big old house. I have one. But if I had to go back to a little shack, I would do that. Don't matter to me anymore. What matters to me is doing my purpose and serving my creator. And the purpose is helping people? Oh, my purpose. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. That's what I am. I'm not a healer. I'm a teacher. And from a cultural perspective, to teach or to educate means to withdraw. I know that everything I share, that I teach, that I know, that I give, people know it on the inside. Everybody knows what I know, every single body. But some of us, our purpose and our life and our learning and our experience doesn't bring it to our awareness. My job is to draw it out. That's what my job is, to renew, to rebuild so that you can be reestablished 
for your original purpose, which is to live, to love, to experience joy. That's why we're here, to live, to love, to experience joy. We ain't here to have no house. We ain't here to have no car. We ain't here to have no, well, kids. We have to reproduce, you know, to live, because reproduction is a part of life. To live, to know joy, joy, and to know peace. That's why we're here. Only purpose for being on the planet is to awaken to our God self, to celebrate life, and to do what brings us joy. That's why we're here. We got all this other stuff all confused and conflomerated. <laughs> <laughs> confused and conflomerated. What, uh, 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 as a teacher, what are some of the books that are super meaningful to you that you want to leave? my listeners with like, please read these things to go deeper into yourself and in the world and understand. Well, for the first one, and I know people are going to clutch their pearls is the Bible, but understand it not as a story of anyone other than you. It's a symbolic representation of the development of your spiritual life. That's what it is. That's well, cancel that. That's how I was taught it. That's how I was taught it. And I'm getting ready to do a class on uh, the loving the Bible, a metaphysical perspective. Because if I think if people understood the metaphysical, the symbolic meaning of the Bible, why? Because it's been read for years and years and years and years and years and years. And the words have power, but you have to know how to apply them, not from a religious perspective, but from a level of consciousness and spirituality. So the Bible is one. And I'm talking, you're talking just spiritual, not cultural, right? You're talking spiritual. Whatever, 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 spiritual and cultural, whatever you want to advise people to pick up. Oh my God, there are so many. Well, if you're looking at healing your childhood wounds, dysfunctional childhood, there's a book called Legacy of the Heart by Wayne Mueller. Incredible piece of work. Really, and it really helps you understand the gifts of a broken childhood. Um, another one that will help you understand the peaks and valleys in your life when things fall apart by Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron is a Buddhist nun. And uh, when things fall apart and go to the places that scare you. I think those are two pieces of work that are just incredible. My, um, my go-to hold on to, and you can't read this like a book. You really have to be trained. It's A Course in Miracles. Course in Miracles changed my life. Changed my life because it changed how I thought. It changed my mind. A Course in Miracles, and there's another one that you can read, um, and it's called The Way to Mastery. The Way to Mastery. And it's three books in one, The Way of the Heart, The Way of Transformation, and The Way of Love. Um, uh, and then me, I'm a student of Howard Thurman. You know, Howard Thurman was the dean of Howard University School of Divinity. And so uh, I'm a student of Howard Thurman. And the one thing he said that helped me rebuild my life is in his Disciplines of the Spirit, he wrote, I just want to be more loving. <laughs> Changed my life. So Course in Miracles taught me there's nothing my holiness cannot do. And Howard Thurman told me, I just want to be more loving. 
those things really. So that would be a beginner's library, I think. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, for folks who have been watching you and watching Fix My Life, Fear Not is coming. How exactly. is Fear Not going to be different than Fix My Life and the the offerings that you've had in the past? Well, first of all, I'm in the room by myself. (laughs) Because of Corona. Yeah, yeah. So it's split screen. You know, television has changed. The other thing is I do a lot of, a lot more teaching in in, um, Fear Not. I'm looking at the three common human fears, which I'm not going to tell you. You have to turn in to see them the three common human fears and how we brought it into the epidemic, how it's showing up and and what we need to do in order to do differently when we get out. There are three basic human fears that everybody has and all other fears grow from one of those. Spiders and uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not going to tell you what. Okay. Okay. Um, But, and then we look at that. So I do a lot more in your face teaching as opposed to, demonstrating it. I have guests. I have some really great guests. And uh, we talk about um, how the lives, because the whole show is, fear not, this ain't new. You've been living with this. Now clean it up. <laughs> you know, you talk about the three fears, and <clears throat> I don't know if this would qualify as fears, but just in my own personal study of emotion that I've been doing. I've been working with a men's group for the past year or so and really try to figure out emotion and how I feel and how others feel. And one of the takeaways that I've noticed in listening to people talk is that at the bottom of almost everybody's emotional well, we are either scared, sad, or angry. Well, you're scared. You're scared. There are only two emotions, love and fear. Everything either grows out of love, compassion, uh, uh, kindness, gentleness, uh, uh, grows out of love, anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, uh, grow out of fear. There are only two emotions. So it's love and fear and they are the mother or the father of everything. But I think you're right. I think because those are the three that send the greatest sensation to through the body. And because the mind has a negative bias, it remembers the negativity quicker than it remembers the positivity. So we know fear because uh, stop your heart. You know, you know, anger because it heats you up. And, and you, what was the other one you said? Uh, Sad anger and fear. You know, sadness because it creates the sensation in your heart. Where is, where does sadness fit? You said love or fear. Sadness seems to be a combination of the two. Fear that whatever broke your heart, disappointed you, that you're not going to get it back, that it's not going to happen, that it wasn't for you. Yeah. And that's a fear. Where does it, what what about for you at the bottom of your emotional well? Is it, is it mainly love? Is it mainly fear? Is it sadness? What's there? Surrender. Surrender. And I learned that when I had to bury my daughter. You know, I learned that. I uh, I lost my baby brother mon- Monday. Oh, had a I'm heart so attack. sorry. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, but, I mean, the reality is that he he wasn't living his life. You know, he, was, he wasn't living. He was existing. And his heart attacked him. Uh, and he passed. And, again, I just, I have to surrender. I have to surrender. It was his soul's choice, his time. I can't be upset about it. 
we had to cremate him because he's in New York and forget a funeral in New York, you know, uh, and it's okay. Because me being upset or me being angry or me being anything, it's not gonna bring him back, you know? And I know the sensation that I'm having is sadness that he, such a beautiful, beautiful spirit, but he wasn't living, he was surviving. And so he just, I know most people don't think of death that way. Right. <laughs> but like I said, it's the same for everybody. He exhaled and he didn't inhale. Whether it was a heart attack or corona or stroke or whatever, he exhaled, he didn't inhale. You, you talked about how you see, you, you approach death differently. And, you know, the brother, the death of your brother is obviously, you know, extremely difficult. But the hardest thing in life is the death of your child. Um, and... Uh, I wonder if you were able to approach your daughter's passing with the sense of surrender and grace that you are talking about now. Or oh, hell you- no. <laughs> my name is Yamla. That means great mother. No, I was out of my mind. I lost my mind. I literally lost my mind. My daughter died on Christmas Day. We buried her on the 30th of December. I went to bed on December 31st and I didn't get out of the bed until May 10th. I literally lost my mind and really contemplated several times to kill myself. I slept with the pistol in the bed and I said, if this thing don't go, if this don't feel better tomorrow, I'm gonna blow my damn brains out. Right now, I'm going to do it. And then the day that I really, uh, really, I was, I was done. I just, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't think and I couldn't. And I had been in the bed and I smelt real bad. It was just horrifying. <laughs> and so I got the gun and I had it to my head and I, that's it. And then I thought about my grandson that I was raising. I thought about my daughter that I was raising. I thought about my son. He would lose his mind because he is a total mama's man. I'm not going to say a mama's boy. He's a mama's man. (laughs) And I I didn't care. I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to kill myself right now. And I heard as if somebody was sitting right next to me. (laughs) Stop being dramatic. (laughs) Stop being dramatic. And then when I thought about, yeah, I am being pretty dramatic. Let me go take a bath. <laughs> Maybe I can think better if I smell better. <laughs> Finally a bath. And then after that, I read through my daughter's journals. She had journals upon journals, and I read through her journals. And um, a friend of mine, uh, a minister, Michael, her godfather, Michael Beckwith, uh, I called him. And I was talking to him about the things that I had read in her journal. And uh, he said, you know, Iyamla, what the Buddhists do is they take their grief and all the feelings they have about losing a loved one, and they put it into something dedicated to that person's memory. So it could be art, it could be a garden, it could be something that you do. Do something and dedicate it to her memory and give that your all in her name. Two days later, I got a call to come to California and do Starting Over. And so that's what I did. I went and I did Starting Over, which was a TV show that I did for two years. And everybody knew Jamea. 
Everybody knew about her because I talked about her all the time. All the all the guests knew, the cameraman, the director, the producers, everybody knew. This is for Jamea. And if Jamea were here, she would. And Jamea used to. Jamea taught me. Jamea taught I did everything in her name. I did that for two years. Yeah. But I miss her. I miss her every single day. I'm a mom, you know, and losing a child changes who you are and losing her changed who I was at the core of my being, changed who I was. And I had to take that change and make it valuable and worthwhile and purposeful because I had her daughter and I had my other kids and I had my grandkids, but it changed who I was. Yeah. Um. Last thing, because it's been so amazing and so powerful. Um, and I ask everybody, what is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other people that allows you to have had the success that you have had? Love. <laughs> I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to be authentic with you. I love you enough to not judge you or criticize you. I love you enough to be just in your presence. I love you enough not to have anything to say. I love you enough to talk your ear off. And I love you enough to remind you that at all times, in all situations, under all circumstances, right where you are, the fullness of God is. Get into that and everything's going to be okay. And that's... What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Thanks so much to Yanla for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Kelly. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. And check out my newsletter, Black Minds Matter. Go to blackmindsmatter.substack.com. That's blackmindsmatter.substack.com.
gmail.com. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.